You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning once again. Uh, We're so glad that you're here with us today at Whitefields Worshiping. And uh, we're going to continue our worship now as we open up the Word of God and, uh, and give ear to it and give our attention to it. Those of you who are staying in here to study with us, uh, please open with me in your Bibles to the New Testament Epistle of James. So the Epistle of James, right after the book of Hebrews, is a big one in your New Testament. So if you find Hebrews, and just go one to the right of that, we're in the Epistle of James this morning. And uh, we began our series last Sunday by looking at the first part of James, but we're going to continue this Sunday by looking at our text, which comes from James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. And we'll begin this morning by reading that text, and then we'll pray. So if you please read along with me in your Bibles, uh, we'll read this text. Let's begin. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like." But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and this morning our desire is not just to hear your word, but to hear it with the intent to do it. And Lord, in order to do that, we need your power, we need your strength. Lord, we don't have the resources in and of ourselves to live the lives that you desire us to live, but Lord, we thank you that you have those resources and you offer them to us freely by your grace. So Lord, as we consider these things, help us to do what depends on us, that we might be doers of the word. But Lord, thank you that ultimately it's your grace, it's your strength that we depend on. And so Lord, this morning we come to your word, we desire to have meek and humble hearts and to receive the word which is able to save our souls and which is able to give us freedom. So, Lord, we ask that as we study your word today, give us insight, and Lord, help us to put these things into practice uh, for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We began a series last Sunday in the Epistle of James called Faith in Motion, which also happens to be our theme for this year. It's kind of the the one sentence or one phrase theme that we've given ourselves for this year. Uh, Faith in Motion. See, here's what we believe. We believe that real faith manifests itself in real actions. Real faith manifests itself in actions. And that's what the Epistle of James is all about. It's all about this, that if the gospel is true, and by the way, it is, But if the gospel is true and we really believe it, then what will that look like in our lives? How will that affect the way that we live practically day to day if the gospel is really true and we really believe it? That's what we're talking about here in the epistle of James. That's the theme of this book, practical Christian living and how the gospel works out in our lives. The title of today's message is Doers of the Word, Doers of the Word. And the core of James' message in this section we just read is really found in verses 22 through 25. So that's where we're gonna begin this morning with our first point, which is this, how to be blessed 
in all that you do. So how to be blessed in what you do. We see that in verses 22 through 25. You know, the word blessed is, is really kind of in vogue these days. It's very popular in our popular culture, right? You see on social media, people love to use a hashtag, you know, hashtag blessed whenever anything good is happening in their lives. Um, but the way that people use the word blessed, like in our culture, in our vernacular commonly, um, basically just means fortunate or lucky. Like you could kind of interchange it with that. It's kind of just the Christian word for fortunate or lucky. You know, got that college scholarship? Hashtag blessed, right? Like unexpected raise? Hashtag blessed. Wonderful family? Post my picture on Instagram? Hashtag blessed, right? So when we pray, we also, we, we tend to ask God to bless our work and to bless our families. And that's fine, but, but let's talk about what blessing is and what it means. So let me ask you a question. Is the word blessed, is this just like the Christian word for lucky? Is it just a Christian word for successful, right? Like a good marriage, a healthy body, a successful career, good friends, financial abundance, hashtag blessed, right? Does that mean though, conversely, that if you don't have those things, that you're no longer blessed, right? Like what if your health spirals downward? What if your financial situation falls apart? What if your marriage dissolves? What if your children rebel? What if your dreams are shattered? Does that mean you're no longer blessed anymore? Or does that mean that God has removed his blessing from your life? Here's an interesting thing. If you look at how the Bible uses the word blessing and blessed, here's what you'll notice. It uses it in a very different way than we tend to use that word in our culture, which even as I was studying this week, I was like, wow, I really have to change my mindset and the way that I think about this word blessed and what it means to be blessed and what a blessing is. Um, for example, let me, give you, let me give you an example. So we, we use here for teaching, I use the, the ESV translation, right? In the ESV translation, there are 112 uses of the word blessed or blessing in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, ESV, 112 times blessed or blessing or some derivative of that. And here's the thing. In all the 112 times that the word blessed or blessing is used in the New Testament, it is never, not once, guys, not once, it is never connected to fortunate circumstances or material prosperity. Not once. That's surprising. It surprised me, honestly. And let me give you some examples of the way the word blessed and blessing are used in the New Testament. Jesus said this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Then he said this, blessed are you if you hear the word of God and keep it. He said, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven, right? Here's another one. Blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial. Here's, check this one out. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. And here's the last one in the Bible. Blessed are you who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now check that out, in none of those examples, and by the way, in none of the other examples where the word blessed or blessing is used in the New Testament is the word blessed or blessing ever connected to material prosperity 
or ideal circumstances. Now, I don't know about you, but I was surprised to learn that. On the contrary, most of these examples, as we read, they actually speak of situations in which people are facing trials and hardships of some kind. According to the Greek dictionary that I pulled out this week, uh, the, the word that's translated blessed, right? It's a, it's a Greek word, uh, makaroi, right? Which, which derives from the word for happiness. But here's what it means. The word blessed, it means to be fully satisfied, to be fully satisfied. It means to be a recipient of God's favor regardless of your circumstances, So recipient of God's favor, regardless of your circumstances, and fully satisfied in God. So what does it mean to be blessed? Again, according to the Bible, it means to be fully satisfied in God and to be in a favorable relationship with God. And here's the deal. You can be fully satisfied in God and you can be in a favorable relationship with God no matter what your material or physical circumstances look like. That's the truth about being blessed. So the question is this, how do we become blessed people, right? How do we become people who are blessed in all that we do? Well, James tells us that, how to be fully satisfied in God and living in a favorable relationship with God. James tells us here in these verses, here's what he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. That's what he says. If you do that, you will be blessed in all you do. Now, what word, right? He says, be doers of the word. What word are we talking about? What word is James talking about in this section? Clearly, he's talking about the word of God, right? God's message, God's word to us. And we know that because in verse 21, which we read and we're gonna talk about in a minute, we're kind of looking at these sections out of order. But in verse 21, James talks about, he says this, receive with meekness the implanted word, And what word? He says the word which is able to save your souls. And so what we're talking about here is the word of God. So the deal is this. In order to be blessed people, we are to be people who not only hear the word of God, but who do the things that we hear and put them into action. Now, let me just be clear. James isn't putting down being a hearer of the word. No, in no me, by no means, right? Because after all, you can't be a doer of the word unless you've first been a hearer of the word. You can't do something unless you know what it is that you're supposed to do. So he's not putting down being a hearer of the word. He's saying that along with our hearing, our hearing is incomplete unless we couple it with doing. See, I believe this idea of, of hearing the word of God would also include reading the word of God. So here at Whitefields, we encourage you to read your Bible and pray every single day. You guys got that? Read your Bible and pray every single day, right? I hope you read your Bible every day. I want you to be somebody who consumes it. But here's the thing we have to recognize, that for most of history, until very recently, the majority of the world has been illiterate. And so the majority of people throughout history didn't have the opportunity to read the Bible in the same way we do today. And their main way of receiving the word of God, scripture, was by hearing it read out loud. And so when we hear this idea of hearing the word, keep that in mind. It also encompasses the idea of reading the word. But what James is telling us is that the goal of reading your Bible, the goal of hearing a sermon or attending a Bible study isn't just to tick the box so that you can say that you did it. 
nor is it to gain more information so you know more than the next guy or so you can win at Bible trivia, right? It's not just to learn more information about the Bible. No, the goal of hearing God's word is to put it into practice in your life. See, it was common in the ancient world for people to listen to different teachers or rabbis or gurus, whoever they might be, right? It was very common for people to listen to them. But if you went beyond just listening to what they had to say and you began to live out what that teacher taught, then they had a different word for that. You're no longer just a hearer of that teacher. Now you're something else. You're what's called a disciple of that teacher. And we can say this, that Jesus is not looking for fans, right? He's not looking for people to like him. No, Jesus is looking for disciples, people who will hear his word and do them. At the end of Jesus' most famous speech, his most famous sermon that he ever gave called the Sermon on the Mount, it's found in Matthew chapters five through seven. At the end of that sermon, Jesus concluded with these words. He said this, whoever hears my words but doesn't do them is like a foolish person who builds their house on the sand. But on the other hand, whoever hears my words and does them is like a wise person who builds their house on the rock. See, when you both hear Jesus's words and do them, it gives your life a strong foundation which is able to withstand any of the storms which will inevitably come your way in this life. See, we as Christians, what we don't want to be, we don't want to devolve and just become a sermon appreciation society. Have you ever been in a place like that? Where it's like, we are a sermon appreciation society, right? We hold up our little signs. I give that one a 5.6, right? You miss the landing, but generally, you know, you got the form right. No, we're not called to be a sermon appreciation society. We're called to be disciples, which means that we hear God's words and then we act on them. We put them into practice in our lives. See, that's real faith. You know what faith is, right? I would define faith like this. Faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. Faith means trusting God enough to do what he says. So let's talk about this. James used this idea in verses 23 and 24 of a mirror. Here's what he says. He says, the word of God is like a mirror. Here's here's how he puts it. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. But after looking at himself, he then goes away and forgets what he looks like. Imagine if you saw somebody looking in the mirror and you asked them, hey, what are, you, what are you doing? They said, well, I'm looking in the mirror. Well, oh, uh, well, why? Well, I just really like looking in the mirror. Well, are you gonna comb your hair? Are you gonna brush your teeth? What are you doing that for? Well, well, no, I don't intend to do anything at all. I just really like looking in the mirror. We have a word for that, don't we? We call that narcissism. And so look, here's the deal. Let's imagine this. You look in the mirror, right? And you've got this big nasty thing hanging out of your nose. Or let's say that you have... You're, you're just a super messy eater, right? And you've just got ketchup all over your mouth. And uh, let's say you have just like, you look in the mirror, you've just got a big black mark on your face because you don't wash your hands and you're getting your face all dirty. Well, what are you gonna do? Well, it would be pretty silly, pretty weird if you just looked in the mirror and said, huh, I look awful. And then you just walked away and did nothing about it, right? That would be odd, that would be strange. Well, the Bible tells us here, James tells us, The word of God is like a mirror. 
And it would be weird, again, if you look in the mirror and saw that gross thing on your face and walked away like nothing was wrong. See, God's word is a mirror that helps us see ourselves clearly. Do you know that? That you need a mirror in order to see yourself clearly. None of us really sees ourselves fully or clearly. We need outside help. We need outside perspective to see what we really look like. You know, I was thinking about this, and I remember when I first moved to Hungary. So I moved to Hungary. I was just shy of 19. I moved there as a missionary. So I moved there. I, I moved there with a small backpack. I didn't own very many things in this backpack. And I, I moved in this apartment with this guy named Pishti. So me and Pishti living in this one-bedroom uh, one apartment. Uh, I lived in the living room. He lived in the bedroom. And uh, neither of us owned anything, right? Like, so he had grown up in an orphanage. He didn't own anything. I had moved there with a backpack. I owned, like, two pairs of pants and a Bible. That was it. And so Pishti and I, one day, we, we didn't, really didn't own anything, like nothing. Like, we had a mattresses that were given to us to sleep on. Well, you know, we kind of looked like a flop house in there, right? So we scraped together our money one day, and we each bought a cup and a towel, right? So that we would each have a cup and a towel. And I remember the day that we got the cups. We were really excited. So we came home. We're like, sweet, now we've got cups. We can drink tea. So we got home. We bought some tea. And then we were standing there in our kitchen, and we're like, oh, yeah, we don't have anything to heat water up in. So uh, what we did is we turned on the hot water on the faucet and just waited for it to get like as hot as it was going to get. And then we tried to make tea with that, which if you've ever done that, it doesn't actually work at all, right? So it was gross, and we didn't have any tea that night. Well, we also didn't have any curtains on our windows, um, which was fine because we lived on the top floor of this building, but we also didn't have a shower curtain, which made showering uh, very hard. The other thing, though, that we didn't have was we didn't have a mirror, like the previous tenants had taken the mirror with them when they moved out, and so we uh, didn't own a mirror. And for a while. And that makes a lot of things really hard. Like, for example, like combing your hair uh, is kind of hard if you don't have a mirror. And so is uh, shaving, right? And so what we would do is like on Sunday mornings, we wanted to look good because we're going to church. We would be like, uh, we just stand there across from each other and like ask each other, how do I look, right? Like, did I miss a spot? And we would like fix each other's hair and that. That's how we did it because we didn't have a mirror. See, eventually what we did, we bought a handheld mirror, like those vanity mirrors, right? And then we nailed it to the wall. So that was our mirror. And then when we moved out, we took it with us. So uh, mirrors are, are pretty important, obviously, right? You guys probably all used one this morning. At least I hope you did. Without a mirror, you really have no idea what you look like, right? You end up being that guy who uh, walks past cars and try. see, I know because I did this, right? You would walk past a car and try to see yourself and, and look like you're not trying to, to steal the car, right? Um, so without a mirror, we don't know what we look like because none of us sees ourselves fully or clearly without some outside help. And that's not just true of our appearance. That's true of our being, right? Our personality, who we are in our essence. It's true of our, our souls. See, we don't see ourselves fully or clearly. None of us do. We need outside help. And what God's word is, is it's that mirror that shows you who you really are what you really look like. It gives you an outside perspective that shows you what you really are. On the one hand, for example, the word of God tells you that you have incredible value. You have great value because you were created by God and you were created in his image. 
So no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your physical ability or disability, you have intrinsic value because you are created by God in his image. God lovingly knit you together in your mother's womb, the Bible says. He knew you before you were even born. And he has endowed you with value and he's endowed you with dignity. And what that means is that you do not deserve to be mistreated or abused by any other person. I hope you know that about yourself. You have value in God's eyes because of this intrinsic value you have of being created in the image of God. And you don't deserve to be mistreated or abused by anybody. When God created the world, it says in the Bible that after everything he created, he looked at that thing and he said, it is good. But when he created the man and the woman, human beings, he looked at them and he said, it is very good. See, here's the deal. Your life matters to God. Your life has value and purpose and meaning because God has given it that. Now, on the other hand, the Bible tells us something else about ourselves. Uh, while on the one hand, we're created in the image of God and we have value and dignity, on the other hand, the Bible tells us that we, we at the same time are flawed, fallen people. We're not who we ought to be. We're not who we were meant to be. We're not who God created us to be. We, we've all fallen short of the standard of perfection. And I think that's no surprise. I think that if we all reflect on our lives, on ourselves, we all have a sense of that, that there are areas where we've fallen short, where we're not who we ought to be. The Bible tells us that as human beings, we even have a propensity. We have a propensity to rebel against God. And our hearts, our core motives and desires are fundamentally tainted. See, the, what the Bible does is it gives us a mirror that allows us to see ourselves as we actually are, warts and all. And that's very helpful, by the way. But the question is this, what will you do with that information? What will you do with that information, right? If you look in the mirror and you see that something's not good, if you go to the doctor and you get the diagnosis, but he also offers you the cure, how are you going to respond? What are you gonna do with that information? The question is, will you take action and do something about it or will you ignore that information and pretend that everything's fine and not do anything? See, we have a word for somebody who does that, right? Somebody who sees the facts, but then walks away as if, as if they didn't register them. We call that person delusional, and it's not a good thing. James here uses this word. He says, you are deceiving yourself, right? It basically means you're delusional. Now, on the other hand, James says in verse 25, he says, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer of the word only, but being a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. See, there are a few things to take note of here in verse 25. First of all, where it says, the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that word looks into, see, in the Greek text, that speaks not just of a cursory glance, but of a penetrating examination, right? Not just a kind of surfacey look at it, but a deep examination of the scriptures. And what this tells us is that although James, right here in this book, his focus is a lot on doing and actions. At the same time, understand this, James is not against intense Bible study. In fact, James encourages it, right? He's saying looking intently, he encourages that. But here's the deal. He encourages that as long as 
It's not just Bible study for Bible study's sake. And you're like, Nick, what's your problem with Bible study? Oh, trust me, I've dedicated my life to Bible study. I love Bible study. But here's the thing we need to recognize. It's, it can't just be Bible study for Bible study's sake. It can't just be studying the Bible in order to gather interesting facts or information just for information's sake. No, there is a purpose in studying the scriptures. And that purpose is to understand these things and then to put them into action. So I want you to study the Bible often and I want you to study it intently. But our goal in doing that isn't just information and it's not just ticking the box to say that we've done it. No, it's always transformation. We're asking God to transform us by his living and powerful word. But here's the other thing I want you to notice in this section. And this is really important. Notice how James speaks of God's law. He calls it the perfect law. He calls it the law of liberty. Now, some people find that surprising because they say, well, wait a second. Isn't the law bad? Doesn't the law put us under bondage? Hasn't Jesus come to set us free from the law? And aren't we now under grace, right? Doesn't grace set us free and the law puts us in bondage? Well, let me explain. See, in Jesus we are saved by grace apart from the law. We're saved by grace apart from the law. We're not saved by our works. We're not saved by being good enough or our performance of keeping God's rules well enough. No, fundamentally and only, we are saved by Jesus's work for us on the cross and in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So, so again, you might ask, well, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus has come to set us free from the law? So how can James say that the law is good and perfect? How can he say that the law gives us liberty? It's actually very simple and it's very profound. See, here's the deal. We are not saved by keeping the law. So we're not saved by keeping the law. We're saved by Jesus' finished work on the cross for us. See, we're set free from the penalty of our sin, which is death eternally, by what Jesus did for us, not by our ability to obey and adhere to God's rules. However, that being the case, there are still plenty of ways that we can be in bondage to things in our life other than just the ultimate penalty for our sins. And so here's the deal. God has given us his law, not to be a means by which we can save ourselves. And let me say this, it was never, ever intended to be that. So the law is not given to us by God to be a means by which we can save ourselves, but it is given to us by God, check this out, to be a playbook for how to live a happy and free life. So the law is given us to be a playbook for how to live a happy and free life. Think about it like this. When God gave the people of Israel the Ten Commandments, how did he introduce it? How did he preface it? You know what he said? He said, right before he gave them the Ten Commandments, he said, I am the God who sets you free. I'm the God who sets you free. Then he gave them the Ten Commandments. In other words, think about this. God was saying that there is a connection, there is a correlation between freedom and following his commandments. There's a correlation between freedom and following his commandments. Let's put it this way. If you want to be a truly free person, then obey God's instructions. If you want to be a truly free person, then obey God's instructions. If, on the other hand, 
You disregard God's instructions. You will not be a free person. Rather, you will always be in bondage to something. You will always be in bondage to something. Let me give you an example. In a commencement speech that he gave for the graduating students of Kenyon College, the writer David Foster Wallace said this. It's now very famous what he said, and it's, it's very powerful. Check this out. He said this. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we will worship. And unless you worship God, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, you will never feel that you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and allure, you will always feel ugly, and when age starts to show, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will always need more power, and you will always need uh, more power over other people to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect and being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud always on the verge of being found out. In other words, whatever is most important in your life, whatever gives you meaning and purpose in life, that is your master. You will do anything to get it, and if you lose it, you will lose the very will to live. In other words, this is him speaking still, he said this, unless God is your master, you will be a slave to whatever you are living for. Now, let me tell you another thing about why that's so profound, because David Foster Wallace was not a Christian, and yet he realized this fundamental fact, this thing is very true in life, that all of us, every single person is living for something, and whatever you live for, that is your real master. That is the thing that you really worship, whether it's, it's money, beauty, health, family, whatever it is. That's your real master. That's your real God. And here's what he says. You will be a slave to that thing, whatever it is, unless unless you have a greater master, unless God is your master. Everyone serves something. The only way to be truly free is to serve God. And, And this is the thing about God's commandments. Every single one of God's commandments is given for your good. I hope you know that. You need to know that. When you read the Bible, Every single one of God's commandments in the Bible is for your benefit, right? It's not like God benefits from this. It's not just arbitrary. It's not that he's bored, right? No, God is wise and loving and all-knowing. And therefore, all of his commandments aren't for his benefit. They're for your benefit, for my benefit. So we don't obey God so that he will love us. No, never. No, we obey God because we know that he does love us. And in this security that we have in his love, he he has told us what is good. He has showed us what is not good. And it would be foolish for us to ignore that. Now, some people say, hey, you know, all this stuff about rules and obedience and the law, man, this is legalism stuff. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm all about grace. I'm not about legalism. Well, hey, I'm all about grace too. I, I don't like legalism either. But here's the deal. It all depends on why you're doing what you're doing, right? So if you're trying to do those things in order to earn God's favor, if you're trying to do anything to earn God's favor, then that is the very definition of legalism. But 
that's not the only reason to obey God's commandments, is it? It's not just legalism. There are other things, right? There are other reasons. There are other motivations. You can also obey God out of love for God, not trying to earn anything at all, just trying to express love for God. You can also do it just because you know that it is good and right and you will benefit from it if you do it. Think about it like this. So I know that my wife likes it if I do the dishes. I know that my wife likes it that if if I do the dishes. Now, I can use that information to try to manipulate her, right? Like when I want something from her, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna do the dishes. And I'm gonna be like, see, do you see what I did? I did the dishes. Did you see that? I did the dishes. Now you do that thing that I want you to do. Or now you have to like me and you have to love me. Cause why? Cause I did the dishes and I'm using it to manipulate you and make you like me and love me. But on the other hand, I can also do the dishes knowing that she likes it if I do the dishes. I can do it for a different motive, right? I can also do it just because I want to bless her because I know that that brings her joy and happiness. See, what matters is not just the action, but the motivation behind the action, why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, now it would be silly, it would be ridiculous for me to say, well, I don't want my wife to think that I'm a manipulative guy, so... I will never do the dishes again, right? Because I don't want her to think I'm manipulating her, so I'm just never gonna do the dishes. Honey, you're gonna be really glad to know this. I'm not manipulating you, and I'm also not doing the dishes just to prove that I'm not manipulating you. Now, that would be silly, uh, of course, right? But in the same way, there are people who are like this when it comes to you know good works and legalism, right? They'll be like, oh, well, look, hey, I don't wanna be legalistic, So I'm not going to worry too much about obeying God or doing what he says, you know, because I don't want to be legalistic about it. Well, no, doing what God says doesn't have to be done out of a legalistic motive. It can also be done as a joyful expression of love and devotion to God. So you just have to make sure that you understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel, that your right standing with God isn't based on your performance at all, but it's based on what Jesus did for you. Once you understand that, once you got that locked in, then you're free to obey God and obey his word and his commandments for all the right reasons. You know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. And it is a, it's an epic poem in which the writer is going on and on and on about the beauty of God's law, right? And the beauty of God's commandments. And he's saying how wise they are, how good they are, how helpful they are. Here's another thing. Jesus told his disciples this, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. I had someone asked me this the other day. They said, you know, in church, we're always talking about, hey, you should love God, love God, love God. Well, how do I do that? Like, what does that actually mean? And I said, well, look what Jesus said. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's how you can practically express your love for him. And that's how you can practically respond to his love for you. Jesus says this, obey my commands. So obeying God and doing what he says leads to liberty. And on the opposite is also true, right? Like disobeying God leads to bondage. That's always true. And so here's the question. Just think about it. Do you want to be a free person? 
Do you want to be a free person or do you want to be a person who lives constantly in frustration and bondage? The choice is yours. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be blessed? Then pay attention to what James is saying here, that every command that God has given you is for your benefit if you want to be a hashtag blessed person, fully satisfied, no matter what the circumstances of your life, then don't just be a hearer of God's word, be a doer. So the question then, the next question, which leads into our next point is, how do you become a doer of God's word? And James addresses that in verses 19 through 21. In verse 19, James says this, be quick to hear and slow to speak. Here's what that means. Uh, What he's telling us is that being a doer of the word begins with listening more than you speak. Listening more than you speak. Here's what that looks like practically. Listen in order to understand, not just in order to get another chance to talk. Listen in order to understand, not just to get another chance to talk. I'm sure you've all been in a conversation with that person. Maybe you've been that person before, right? Who's like, you're not listening to really understand. You're really just listening so that that to wait for that person to take a pause so you can continue expressing your own thoughts and and what you want to say. Let me tell you this, if you do that, you will not grow. If you do that, you won't grow. And other people around you will not feel that you love and value them. See, studies have shown over and over that when it comes to feeling appreciated and loved, this is like at the top of the list. People want to be understood. They want to feel that they have been heard and listened to. You might put it this way. Listening is the bridge that love travels over. Listening is the bridge that love travels over. So in your relationships with other people and in your relationship with God, listen in order to understand. Don't just wait for an opportunity to talk again. Be a doer of the word, and it begins with listening more than you speak. The next thing we see is that being a doer of the word means taking action to clean out the crud. James says in verse 19, he says, be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Uh, So, right, the anger of man. Now, there are times in the Bible where God is described as being angry about things. For example, God is angry about oppression. God is angry about injustice. God is angry when children are abused. He's angry when women are battered. Jesus was angry when he saw how people were using religion as a way of making themselves rich at the expense of other people's devotion and piety. See, but most of the time, if we're honest with ourselves, our anger isn't so much based on righteousness as it is based on insecurity. Most of the time, when I get angry, when you get angry, when we flare up, it usually has something to do with our own insecurity or our own impatience or ungraciousness with others. So James goes on to say in verse 20, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. I don't know if any of you ever read the old King James, like old school, right? Um, but, but here's what James, uh, here's how the old King James puts this, where it says rampant wickedness, it calls it the superfluidity of naughtiness. Right, that speaks to me personally. I feel like I probably have a superfluidity of naughtiness in my own life. 
Maybe you do too. But being a doer of the word means taking practical steps to clean out the crud, get rid of those things in your life which are contrary to God's word and God's will. And finally, the last step that he gives us there in verse 21 to becoming a doer of the word, he says, being a doer of the word requires humility. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. Meekness, by the way, that's an interesting word. Did you know that's one of the only adjectives Jesus ever used to describe himself? He said, I am meek. What does it mean to be meek? Well, the word meek essentially means this. It means power under control, power under control. You can think about it like a a big, strong horse. If you ever stood next to a horse, right? They're just pure muscle, complete strength. And yet that horse can bring its muscle and strength into submission to its master. It doesn't mean that the horse is weak, not by any means. The horse is extremely strong. No, but the horse submits to its master because that's what meekness is. It's power under control, brought under submission. That's how Jesus described himself. The reason he came to this earth, the reason he served, the reason he went to the cross, it wasn't because he was weak. It was because he was meek. That power was under control, submitted to a master who is greater than him. And that's what it's calling us to do, to receive with meekness the implanted word. That means to make a conscious choice, to bring yourself into submission to God, to make him your master and submit your mind and your heart and all of your life to him. And that requires humility. And check out what James says about the word. He says it has the power to save your soul. In order for the word to have its effect in your life, you have to recognize that your soul needs saving, that you have a need which you cannot meet, which only God can meet for you. You have to recognize your inability in and of yourself to clean out the crud in your life, to to live a life that is pleasing to God. See, here's the deal. As James is pointing out, our actions matter very much. Our actions matter. But we also need to remember this fundamental truth that the power to do these things doesn't come from us. It comes from God who gives freely to you if you will ask for it. But asking for it, as James is telling us, requires humility. It requires humility. But remember this, as James is going to tell us later on, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So we should never fear being humble people. Being a doer of the word requires humility. Being a doer of the word, and here's what this looks like practically. This is the final section. The last two verses of the section, he talks about what being a doer of the word looks like practically. And he says, here are three marks of true religion, three marks of somebody who is a doer of the word. First of all, you know how to bridle your tongue. First of all, you know how to bridle your tongue. He says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. Those are pretty strong words. We're gonna talk more about that idea of bridling your tongue in chapter three, but apparently it's pretty important and it was an issue in James's time just as it's an issue in our time. So being a doer of the word, true religion, means being, is marked by being able to bridle your tongue. Secondly, 
It means it's marked by having a heart of compassion and generosity for the most needy and vulnerable in society. Having a heart of compassion and generosity for the most needy and vulnerable in society. He specifically mentions uh, orphans and widows. In, In that society, orphans and widows would have been the most needy people in society. In our society, it might be different people, but it's worth considering and asking that question. Who are the people in society who are most needy, most vulnerable? And how would God have us serve them in his name? How can we be his hands and his feet in the world? And so that these people can see that God loves them and cares about them. You know, guys, that's why we do some of the outreaches we do here at Whitefields, especially to children in in foster care and things like that. I would just encourage you, not only do I want you to participate in these outreaches, I want you to pray in your own life. Where are the areas where God might want to use you to reach out to people, to show them that God knows about them, that God loves them, and that God cares about them. And finally, the last mark of true religion, he says here is this, you have personal holiness, personal holiness. James speaks of keeping yourself unstained from the world. So one of the marks of being a doer of the word and true religion is personal holiness. So just in conclusion, when we talk about being blessed in what we do, we have to remember this above everything else. The message of the gospel is that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, here's the deal, he gave up his blessed status for you. He gave up his blessings for you so that you could be blessed because of him. See, the reason that you can be blessed, the reason you can have that relationship with God that we were talking about is because Jesus gave up his blessings and he took our curse so that we could become blessed. See, we we mentioned how being blessed means being in a favorable relationship with God. Understand this, the message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he gave up his favorable relationship with the Father. On the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because as he hung on the cross, all of our sins, all of your sins, all of the judgment for everything you've done, everything you deserve, It was laid upon him and he was forsaken by God. He who was blessed from all eternity became cursed for us so that we who are cursed from birth could become blessed. We could become blessed people in a favorable relationship with God so we could know God and be fully satisfied in him no matter what our circumstances in life. See, all these things that we've talked about today, being doers of the word, cleansing ourselves of of filth and wickedness, living to please God, these are all things which in and of ourselves, we lack the power to do them. But in Christ, by the spirit of God, God has given us everything we need. It is yours for the asking, for the taking. And your actions in these things absolutely matter. But may we remember and never forget this message, the good news of the gospel. May we rely on, may we cling to Jesus Christ, not ourselves, but Jesus and what he's done for us. And may we do everything in response to that by the power of God that's available to us to be doers of the word and not just hearers so that we may be blessed in all that we do. Amen? Let's stand and pray, and then we'll be done. Lord, we thank you for your word, and thank you, uh, Lord, that it is so full of wisdom and truth. 
Lord, thank you that it is the word which sets us free. And Lord, we ask today that you would help us as we have now heard your word. Lord, may we go from here and may we not just be hearers who forget, but doers who act. Lord, we need your grace to do that. We pray that you give it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.